Our family is curious. We've traveled far and wide in search of who, what, when, where, and why, and what we've learned, we write about. We are writers. Hi, I'm your host, Sarah Marinus Vandershaft, and I'm a writer and the daughter of Pulitzer Prize winner David Marinus. Welcome to our podcast, Ink in Our Blood, where my father and I explore with you our family's culture, legacy, and experiences as writers. In our second season, we'll talk about the mythology of sports and whether sports matter, about Broadway shows, the search for truth and reliable information, and uncovering not only my grandfather's FBI file, but the story of how he met my grandmother. And we'll have some special guests. Today, son Andrew, the author of Strong Inside and Games of Deception, takes the role of moderator in a conversation with me, his dad, and our longstanding family friend, John Feinstein, the author of some of the seminal sports books of our times, including Season on the Brink, A Good Walk Spoiled, A Civil War, and his latest, The Back Roads to March. It's John. Hey, guy. Andrew. Hey, John. How are you? I'm here. All right. Good like Johnny. everybody else, I guess. Yeah. Johnny, the storm woke me up at uh, 5.30 this morning, and I turned on the radio, and it was the junkies. Yeah. I, I, I thought, Feinstein can't be up this early. I wasn't. I know. It was a, re- <laughs> it was a tape. But there you were, yeah. blabbing away. Well, <laughs> that's, that's what I do. <laughs> What they pay me for. Oh, I know. <laughs> John, listen to this. Fifteen minutes ago, David Marinus emailed me with what questions he wanted me to ask him. And Really? Was, yeah, this is a Washington Post journalist doing that. I was wondering, did Bobby Knight tell you what questions that you should ask him when you were writing Season on the Brink? Uh, no, and I, I didn't ask him a lot of questions, Andrew. I just mostly hung around and listened. Right. Uh, sometimes <laughs> sometimes had, uh, it's better not to ask questions. <laughs> That's right. And if you had, you would have not listened to him, right? Well, yeah. well, through the years, and I'm sure you guys have both had this experience, people will say, you know, can you submit a list of questions? Can you tell, you know, you're dealing with a PR guy or something. And my answer is always the same. I don't know what my second question will be until the person has answered my first question. And that's my, it's true, but it's also a polite way of saying, I don't submit questions. <laughs> so and so it, it has the, the uh, benefit of being the truth, but it also, the one time I got in trouble with that was when the PR guy for Tim Fincham, when he was the, uh, uh, commissioner of the PGA Tour called and, and he was new and he wanted me to give him, you know, what questions are you going to ask the commissioner today? I had, you know, asked to talk to him and the time had been set up. I don't even remember what it was about. And uh, he said, can you give me an idea of, of some of the questions you're going to ask the commissioner? I said, no, for the reason I just cited. And he said, well, I really need to know. And I said, why? And he said, well, I'd like to give him a heads up. And I said, Bob, the guy went to college on a debating scholarship. <laughs> I really think he's going to be okay. And I've interviewed him 25 times in the past. So an hour later, he calls me back and says, Tim's not going to be able to do it today. 
you know, obviously a power play. So I called Tim's assistant, who I knew well, and I said, Kathy, what's going on here? And she started, she's a really, really attractive woman with the dirtiest mouth I've ever heard. And she started screaming profanities at this guy, you know, through me, saying that dumb blah, 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 blah. He said, you, she said, you stay there. Five minutes later, Tim was on the phone. <laughs> now, Dad, I know there was one time you had an interview, I think, in the Oval Office with President Obama, and you strategically did let him know that the name of one of your chapters uh, in your book for a, for a good reason. Yeah. Um, first of all, I want to say that that was fake news on your part. I did not tell you <laughs> what questions to ask me. I told Hang you on I here. Hang on. If you're going to, David, if you're going to quote Donald Trump, I'm hanging up now. <laughs> okay, I will track it. I won't even okay. get into the argument. Come up with a, be come up with a better way of saying it. <laughs> I'm not even going to say I that. deny it. I, okay, I deny it. Thank you, Johnny. I, I told you a couple of sort of uh, random th thoughts I had about things I wanted to talk about. I didn't say anything I didn't want to talk about. Anyway, so yes, not only... Are we on the record? We're on the record, yes. <laughs> okay. Um, the, yeah, so President Obama was the final interview for my biography of him. And there were a couple of things that I wanted him to know. And so it was the only occasion in my career where I allowed a politician to actually read something before the interview. And there were two profound reasons for that. Um, one was that I had found his, uh, one of his um, old girlfriends before he was married, the one that's in his memoir, Dreams from My Father, where he talks about how I was in love once with a girl and she was white. Every reporter in the world, political reporter, tried to find her, and I did. So I wanted him to know that not only did I find her, but that I, she had given me her diary. And the reason for that is that the more someone thinks that you know about them, the more they will talk. And so that was a way to get uh, President Obama to talk about something um, that otherwise would not, you would just have stayed away from. He knew that I knew too much. The second reason was, in my introduction, I said that his memoir was excellent literature, but it was not biography. In other words, it was a loose rendition of facts based on the way he felt uh, he wanted to tell his life. And I wanted him to discuss that, the difference between memoir and biography. So in that one instance, um, for reasons that I think actually helped my book, I did let him know about what I was going to ask and read a little bit of it. David, did you ever interview his brother-in-law? Yeah. Uh, Craig Robinson, I certainly did um, when he was up at Brown. As the basketball did he tell coach. you the story about... When, when, when Barack and Michelle were first dating? Um, I, I, yes, he did. You mean about uh, whether Barack could play ball? No, no. Oh. Um, uh, but I, the way he told it to me was he was doing the big brother, what are your intentions with my little sister routine? And he said to him, so uh, what, what do you want to do eventually? What do, what do you want to be? And he said, Barack said, well, you know, I'd like to get into politics. And he said, oh, really, run for alderman, something like that? And Barack said, no, no, I'd, I'd like to run for the Senate and someday run for president. Yeah, and he um, said, he looked at Barack and said, 
do me a favor. Do yourself a favor. Don't say that in front of my father because he'll think you're out of your mind. <laughs> there's, a, there's a semblance of truth to that story, actually. Oh. Uh, Barack was in that period talking uh, in grandiose terms, and um, some of his friends bought into it, and a lot of the wiser ones did not. Right. <laughs> All right. Well, John, speaking of fathers, I saw you tweeted, was it yesterday or two days ago? Yesterday, yeah. Your father's uh, birthday. Yeah. And he, he was what, director of the Kennedy Center and the National Symphony. Um, what did he think about having a, a sports writer as a son? I'm not sure he ever completely accepted it, Andrew. Um, you know, uh, I once wrote a magazine piece, and it was called The Mets versus The Met. Because when, when I was growing up, I was sports obsessed. I, you know, played everything, went to games at Shea Stadium and Yankee Stadium and Madison Square Garden, and, uh, and, and was a fan of all the New York teams. And my dad sort of rolled his eyes at it. And I also had to, at times, go to, go to the opera and go to the ballet and go to the symphony and you know, once once I raced Leonard Bernstein down the aisle at, at Carnegie Hall before a concert, <laughs> I won. By the way, I should hope. Um, How old uh, was he? Uh, well, he was he was still relatively young. I was okay. six. Uh oh. Um, <laughs> and uh, I still remember my mother making me go to Marian Anderson's farewell concert when I was about eight. And I'm forever grateful to her for forcing me to go. I had to give up a hockey game that afternoon. Um, but uh, I think my, both my parents thought that the sports thing would go away at some point. That when, I, when I realized I wasn't going to play center field for the Mets or be the Knicks point guard, that I would you know, find a real job uh, when I got out of college. And, of course, when I got to college, I ended up on the student newspaper, and I wrote sports and news. Uh, which turned out to be very important for my future. Um, but uh, I still remember, when, David, you remember this, when I was trying to decide whether to go back to sports yes. from Metro when I was covering Maryland politics. And Bob Woodward thought I was out of my mind and told me so. And you, you guys know how much respect I have for Bob. But I, 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 I told this story before, but I, I was – driving home one night and I was trying to decide uh, George Solomon had offered me the chance to come back to sports because Howard Simons ordered him to and uh, Larry Kramer who was then the Metro editor had told me that I'd be going to both political conventions if I stayed covering Maryland politics and I was genuinely torn because I liked covering politics um, and in those days you could actually talk to Republicans. They, some of them were, were among my best sources. David, I'm sure you experienced that in the legislature too. Yes. And so I was driving home and I picked up a hockey game coming out of New York, an Islanders Canadians game. It was November, meaningless early season game. And I'm listening to it. And when I got to my house, the Islanders were up two one. there were like five minutes left. And I sat in my car with my ear to the radio listening to the last five minutes because the, the, the reception wasn't terribly good. Islanders won. I got out of my car, and I'm walking up the steps to my house, and I thought, what the hell was I just doing? And, <laughs> I mean, 
are you serious? And I, I went in the next morning and I told Larry Kramer the story and he said, yeah, you should be a sports writer. That's where your real passion lies. So I went back to sports. And again, my, when I told my parents that decision, my mom was fine, but my dad was like, what are you talking about? You know, Bob Woodward says you have a future as a real reporter. What are you doing? And I said, well, I'm following my passion. And I think, you know, as my career went on, um, I think my dad was very proud of, of what I eventually accomplished. Although when, when season on the brink got to be number two on the bestseller list, I called both my parents and I was on the road and my mom was over the moon excited. My dad said, well, why isn't it number one? And I said, dad, Bill Cosby's number one, ironically with a book called fatherhood that had been number one for about a year. And I said, this is about as good as it's going to get. And he said, well, okay. And then a week later, it got to be number one. And then he was genuinely excited. So the long-winded answer to your question is, Andrew, <laughs> he never could quite figure out why the hell I was so passionate about sports, but he was very happy that it worked out for me. You now, know, the other aspect of that, we, we all know uh, one of Bob Woodward's famous sayings, which is, um, the best work is always done in defiance of management. Right. So in a sense, you were defying what even he as management was urging you to do. Well, as you know, David, if I had a strength, it was defying management. <laughs> <laughs> you wrote the book on that one, Johnny. Yeah, basically that's what I did. Andrew, when, when David introduced me, was kind enough to come down to North Carolina to introduce me when I was inducted into the National Sports Writers and Sportscasters Hall of Fame, his opening line was, when we were at the Washington Post together, I thought my job was to keep John from getting fired. Um, <laughs> and he did it pretty well for, for a, a number of years. Um, the, other, the other story about, you, you may remember this, David, shortly after, this is the, where I think we want to go with this conversation. Shortly after I went back to sports, I went to lunch with David and Pat Tyler. David, you remember Pat Tyler. Yes. Um, very good investigative reporter who ended up at the New York Times. And we were discussing reading the paper in the morning. And Pat turned to me and said, John, I, I, I'm sorry, you know, but by the time I get through the, the A section and Metro and the op-ed page, I just don't have time to read the sports page. David, do you have the same problem? And David said, no, I really don't because I read sports first. <laughs> and, and I think that that kind of sums up the world that I've lived in, I, I mean, I understand that people take often take sports too seriously. I deal with it firsthand a lot, but I also understand that sports is, has a genuine role to play in our lives and can be a very positive thing uh, if handled correctly. The first person who actually said that, that they re read the sports section first, was Chief Justice Earl Warren. Um, which in the 1950s shocked a lot of people, but sort of. I'm sure. Yeah. 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 And, and of course, nowadays there's plenty of time to read the paper. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. A day late. We let it sit out in the sun. By the way, we're re recording this on a uh, COVID-19 lockout Monday. Correct. Right. Which I wanted to ask about what are you both of you guys doing these days? Dad, you're in the, research phase for your next book is that right which is uh, i know you typically bounce back and forth between sports and politics and this is another sports book yeah this is a biography of jim thorpe 
Um, I've been working on it um, probably three quarters time for the last year or so. I had uh, 40 uh, three-ring binders full of documents and interviews. and Got to have the documents. Yep. Uh, and so what I've been doing um, is really, you know, my day is not that different than it might have been anyway because I can't go to Oklahoma or to Carlisle, Pennsylvania or to Canton, Ohio or any of the other places of Jim Thorpe's life. But I have so much information that I haven't quite processed fully. So I'm putting together my master file of all the material I have. And I, day after day, I go up into my office and spend about eight hours on that. The file is now 780 single-spaced pages um, on my computer. And I'll write the book essentially from that. I have a lot of, of travel research to still do, but this has given me the chance to catch up. And I would probably have been spending two or three months at this processing part of it, after I'd finished the reporting or finished most of the reporting, I'm just doing it a little bit earlier because of the fact that I'm not going anywhere except, you know, Linda and I, my wife, um, about three weeks ago, we would go for walks in the neighborhood. We called them walking tour A, B, C, and Z. Uh, but the last week, um, we became more cautious and now basically we're doing the same amount of walking, but in the perimeter of our house from front to back, kind of like polar bears at the uh, Central Park Zoo. Hmm. <laughs> and, John, you've got a great new book out, Backroads to March, um, about the uh, the one-bid leagues, and you've traveled around the country talking to coaches and, and following a season, um, and it's gotten great reviews. What's it like to have a new book out during this strange time? Yeah, it, it, it's 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 weird, Andrew, and 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 it's been great because the reviews have been remarkably good, uh, as good reviews. As, uh, I mean, I've been lucky with reviews throughout most of my career, but uh, I I it may be out there somewhere, but I haven't seen a negative review or even a negative reference in a review yet, and that's gratifying. The uh, it, it you know I've been doing a lot of interviews promoting the book with people saying, well, we, we don't have an NCAA basketball tournament, but John's book is out, so let's talk about it, and people should buy it, and it's been selling well, which is nice. They went back for a second printing, which my editor tells me these days, because book sales are so down, because nobody can go to bookstores. And that's more, um, people you know, talk about Amazon and, and, and how many books are bought on Kindle and things now. Bookstores are still the, the main place people go for books. Um, not nearly as much as they used to. Amazon and Kindle have cut way into their sales. That's why so many have gone out of business. But they still provide, I don't know, close to two-thirds of book sales or 60%. So it's, it's nice that the book sold the way it has and gotten the response that it has. But it is weird. It was weird to sit here uh, on, on the day of the national championship game uh, when I should have been in Atlanta uh, and do book interviews from home. And throughout the three weeks, it was a, a, an odd feeling to be doing that uh, when I normally would have been on the road for three weeks of the NCAA tournament and then last week for the Masters. Although I don't miss the Masters nearly as much as I, I miss uh, the basketball tournament because I think the Masters is one of the most overrated entities in sports. It's a great golf tournament, but uh, if, if you know anything about the history of the membership, you don't want to you know, bow down to it the way most TV people do. But 
Um, I've been, I, as David knows, I, I just started the research a couple months ago on a book about race and sports, because I, I think it's the, um, it's the, the elephant in the room, not just in sports, but in our society. And it's something I've wanted to do for a while. And unfortunately, you know, I, I've done a number of, of, of really good interviews early on, but I can't travel like David said. And so I'm, I'm pretty much shut down because I'm not nearly as far along as he is. I don't have anything written yet. Uh, so what I've done is I've moved up the writing of my next kid's mystery, which I wasn't going to start it till June. Uh, and I've started it and I've written about, I don't know, 15, 20,000 words and it's helping keep me busy, but it's been surprising how much work I've actually had. Cause there's still news even when games aren't going on in sports and, uh, you know, uh, last week I, I wrote a piece for golfdigest.com, uh, obviously, on a, a reunion of uh, Bruce Edwards' friends and family done via Zoom, um, which was uh, on the 16th anniversary of his death. Bruce Edwards was Tom Watson's caddy for 30 years, and I wrote a book about him called Caddy for Life that came out literally the week he died in 2004. And uh, last night, Doug Sanders died. Doug Sanders was a very good golfer. Um, won 20 times on the PGA Tour, just missed winning several majors, is not in the Hall of Fame, even though his resume is probably better than some who are. And Doug Sanders was the first golfer I ever interviewed in college, when I was in college. So I'm going to write a piece about him today. So I've kept pretty busy. And why did you interview him in college? You know, I always liked him. He was very colorful he, when I was a kid. He wore crazy pants, even for a golfer. He had the shortest backswing maybe in the history of golf. Um, lost the British Open to Jack Nicklaus in 1970 because he missed a three-foot putt on the 18th hole to win uh, and was always very you know, outgoing and talkative. So when I was in college, the Greater Greensboro Open, which is now known as the Wyndham Classic because they all have corporate names, uh, was played in April. And their PR people used to send out a, a credential form to the college papers in the state. And I, my junior year, uh, I filled out the credential, got a credential, and thought it would be kind of cool to try to interview Doug Sanders. So I, I walked the back nine with him, introduced myself afterwards, after he finished, and I told him who I was and that I'd like to talk to him. He said, yeah, come on inside, I'll buy you a beer. And we sat at the bar and talked for about an hour, and I wrote a column. It was fun. Well, you brought up a couple of things in your um, answer there that I want to get into. But, uh, John, I don't know if you remember this, but it's basically like clockwork. I interview you every 37 years. Um, <laughs> without fail. Yes, without fail. Like First Healy's Comet. Ever... What's that? Like Healy's Comet. Yeah. Uh, you may remember the December 1983 interview that I did with you for AJ Sports Journal. Um, Vividly. In our living room in Silver Spring, Maryland, that magazine that I created lasted for one issue. Uh, did did I bring McDonald's? Were... <laughs> it was in McDonald's? Did I bring McDonald's <laughs> oh, to you, eat? I'm sure you did. You brought yeah. McDonald's every time you came to our house. Yep. Um, and in that interview, I asked you, what's your favorite sport? to cover and you said 
college basketball. And you said, in college, the action is terrific. The players play hard all the time for 30 games. I also enjoy the kinds of people I meet, the players and coaches, at least most of them. And in back roads to March, I think it's fair to say that that level of basketball you consider sort of the, the, the purest form of, of college basketball still left. Um, is that true, and, and why do you think so? Well, the purest form, Andrew, is probably Division Three, where nobody gets a scholarship. But right. um, going to that level of Division One allowed me to go back to those days that you're talking about uh, when I was a young reporter um, and covering college basketball, uh, and there was an intimacy to it um, that I greatly enjoyed. You could walk into practice uh, anytime you wanted. I, I, when I was doing my book a couple years ago, The Legends Club, um, uh, which was about Mike Krzyzewski, Dean Smith, and Jim Valvano, I walked into a Duke practice one day. I had been spent most of the day with Krzyzewski, and I walked into practice, um, and about eight managers tackled me before I walked four steps onto the floor. And, you know, fortunately, Krzyzewski, I think he thought about it for a few minutes, thought about having me <laughs> carried out of there, but he said, no, no, it's okay. Um, but uh, um, back then, you could you'd walk in the locker room and sit and chat with players at length before practice, after practice, uh, and, and, you you know, I'd go out to you know Gary Williams, really well when he was coaching at American. Uh, they were playing at Fort Myer in those days, and we'd go out and eat after games, uh, played at the fort. And uh, I wanted to get back to that. I, I, I really did. I, 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 I love that kind of reporting. One of the things I learned from Woodward early on, David, I don't know if you even know this story, but when I was the night police reporter, and he had just become the Metro editor, um, I wrote like a three-inch short one night about a car accident in Northeast. Um, car going one direction, had hopped the median and slammed into a car coming in the other direction. Everybody was alive. They were taken to D.C. General Hospital. Um, and, uh, but I wrote three paragraphs about it. And the next morning I came in and Bob said to me, he said, you know, there's a hell of a story there. And I looked at him and I said, what are you talking about? He said, why don't you go interview the three people in the hospital? If, they're, if they can talk, um, because what was going on in their lives at 3 o'clock in the morning? Where were they going? What were they doing? And so I went to the hospital, and in those days, you could walk into a hospital and just say, what room is David Marinus in? And they say, oh, 642. So I walked in. I had the three names, and it turned out that the guy who had hopped the median was a Howard University law student who'd been studying and, and decided to go home to his apartment to sleep for a couple hours before a final. And fell asleep at the wheel and went across the median. The couple coming in the other direction had just learned that day that she was pregnant with their first child. And they were holding hands. They were on their way to Baltimore to tell their parents. And they were holding hands, saying a prayer, thanking God for the pregnancy when they got hit. Thank God the baby was okay. But I talked to all three of them. They talked about, you know, what had happened and all that. And it ended up on the front page. And what I learned from that was you don't have to be rich and famous to have a story to tell. And I've, I've always sort of followed that instinct. I've written about plenty of famous people. You guys know that. But 
I, I wrote a book about the Army-Navy football rivalry. I wrote a book about Patriot League basketball. I wrote a book about PGA Tour qualifying school. I wrote a book about AAA baseball. And loved doing all those books. All, they all did very well. Um, got really good reviews. Like this book, Backroads to March, again, not about famous people. And I love the idea of writing, whether it's a story or a book or a magazine piece, whatever, a, a, a piece in which when people finish reading it, they say, I didn't know that. And that's what Backroads to March is really about. You know, John, I never heard that story of Woodward telling you to go to the hospital. Uh, but I've used that same technique myself throughout my career. And the most memorable time I did it was I was in Austin as the Southwest Bureau Chief for the Washington Post. And I had, like you, um, a fear of flying then. I've overcome it right. better than you have. But in right. any case, there was a plane crash in Dallas. Um, and I was in Austin, and I was called to go up to Dallas to write about the plane crash. And it turned out that about 15 people died and another 20 survived. And all of the other reporters who went to cover that plane crash were focused on the NTSB investigation, um, why the plane might have crashed. My only interest in the way I did the story was I'll, I said to myself, if I can, you know, usually investigations take weeks of a plane crash. But because, I had, but because I had such a strong fear of flying and um, I knew that there were survivors, I went to the hospital and interviewed right. all of the survivors and said, what seat were you in? What were you doing? Where were you going? What was it like going down the runway? So that I could put, because that, that's the moment of fear, is right when something's happening at that moment. Everything is normal in life until then. And I wanted to capture that moment. And so the only way to do it, just like you did with those people at 3 o'clock in the morning in the car, was to go find the, the regular people who were on that plane who survived it to capture that very moment. Yep, yep. And I bet it was a great story. Well, it was on the top of the front page. There you go. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> so, Dad, John talked about sort of a simpler time uh, in sports where you could walk right up to a coach and go have dinner with them after practice. And when you attempted to steer me in a certain direction for this interview, <laughs> um, you you mentioned that, you know, one of the themes of your books is um, on the flip side of that sort of the this fallacy of an innocent past in, in sports uh, that we hearken back to a lot as fans. Um, so can you give some examples of how you've uh, looked to puncture that myth a little bit in some of your books? Well, the, the truth is that human nature doesn't change. The society changes around it. And people, you know, there are a lot of people who are always sort of wanting to hearken back to the good old days when everything was innocent and the players were all innocent. And or you could go out to dinner. Or you could go out to there. The parts of it are true. There was a better relationship, a closer relationship, I should say, between sports writers and the people they were writing about. You know, in the oldest days, they'd be on the trains together for weeks. And so they all knew each other. You know, if you've ever read Ring Lardner's great short stories, they're all, they're all, almost all of them take, with the baseball ones all take place on the trains. Um, but what I'm talking about is the notion that that sports was pure at any previous yeah. moment. Um, so, you know, um, 
you know, like John has written wonderfully about Army-Navy football, and there is a purity to that, but you also have to remember, you know, when I was researching my Lombardi book, he was an assistant coach at West Point in the early 1950s, and in 1951, the Army football team was rocked by a huge cheating scandal where players... The whole academy. The whole academy was, but it was led by the football players. Um, They were the ones who instigated it. And, you know, they were, quote, unquote, passing the poop, meaning they were passing information on what the quiz answers and questions would be. Um, Similarly with Lombardi, going back to 1936 when he was one of the famous seven blocks of granite on the Fordham football team, back when John's hometown, New York, was the center of college football, believe it or not. And Fordham was um, on its way to going to the Rose Bowl. They were undefeated until they were about to play NYU in the final game. And five of their best players, um, a few days before the game, snuck across the river to Newark and played illegally in a professional game under pseudonyms. And they were injured, and uh, Fordham ended up losing that game. So, you know, you, you can go throughout any, any uh, generation of, of sports history, and you'll find that um, in 1912, Jim Thorpe was denied his gold medals after he'd won them at the Stockholm Olympics because he played semi-pro baseball um, in the Eastern Carolina League a couple of years before that, getting maybe $30 a month. Well, it turns out that hundreds of college players were playing illegally, but they were using pseudonyms, false names, and Thorpe used his own real name. One of those who played illegally was none other than a future president, Dwight David Eisenhower. So, you know, you can go on and on through history and find that same fallacy of an innocent past. Dwight Eisenhower, who, who tore up his knee trying to tackle Thorpe uh, in uh, an Army Carlisle game. Yeah, that's <laughs> sort of bulg- oh, almost true. <laughs> <laughs> well, whatever. Uh, but, but to, to yeah. your point, though, I mean, even as recently as 1994, just before I, I did a Civil War, uh, they had what was called a double E scandal at uh, Navy, where uh, a lot of the football players and a lot of the midshipmen uh, were were cheated on an electrical engineering test, and and many were many were thrown out of school, uh, football players and mids um, who didn't play football. But in the introduction to um, uh, Backroads to March, I wrote, I said, I, I don't want to claim here that there's a purity to college hoops uh, that, that, that doesn't exist in, in other places. I said, I think the first time a player was bought by a college was probably about 15 minutes after James Naismith hung the first peach basket. Um, because it, I remember Gene Cargan, Gene Cargan, who was commissioner of the ACC, who played um, lacrosse at, at Duke in the 50s, said, there was much more cheating in the 50s than there is now. It's just that back then, no, oh, nobody yeah. was writing about it. Nobody caught pe- People rarely got caught. Now people get caught more often, but it's not because there's more cheating. It's because it's harder to get away with it. And one thing that was uh, true in the Absolutely 50s also, right. and you, John, you alluded to your next book about race and sports, and all three of us have written about the uh, sort of my book was Subtitled, The Collision of Race and Sports in the South. Uh, on Perry Wallace, Dad, you've obviously written about Roberto Clemente, and race was a big part of your book on the Rome 1960 
Olympics. And if one of the themes of this podcast is, you know, why does sports matter? I think one way that sports really matters or is a, a window and a mirror of American culture is in regard to race. Uh, John, what are the, the, what are you really exploring in, in this new book that you're writing? Well, what, what I'm trying to do, and again, Andrew, I'm early on in my research, but is people, white people in particular, um, and times 10 Trump voters, will, will want to believe that race is no longer an issue in our society. And again, sports is a mirror in many ways, although sports has also been ahead uh, of um, society. I mean, Jackie Robinson played in the major leagues in 1947. Uh, Brown v. School Board was until 1954. Uh, and and uh, black kids, and when I was a kid in New York City, I never thought twice about the fact that I was the only white guy on my junior high school basketball team. It was just, it, it was what it was. And, and, and you know, Gary Williams, uh, who grew up in, in Camden, New Jersey, uh, and played at a schoolyard where he was practically the only white kid, if not the only white kid, always said the thing that he loved about sports as a kid was that the scoreboard didn't see race. The scoreboard didn't care whether you were black or white. All he cared about was, were you good? Um, but go back to uh, the, the, the national anthem controversy that started with Colin Kaepernick and remember the reactions. But by white people, how dare he, you know, Trump tweeting, he should leave the country. And then when the protests continued the next season after Kaepernick was blackballed by the NFL, you know, white, I was, I was working on a, an NFL book that year and I was in stadiums where the Baltimore Ravens, the, the week after Trump's rant in Alabama, as a group, as a team, they knelt before the anthem was played. And then they stood for the anthem, arm in arm, and the entire stadium booed them for kneeling before the anthem. And it, there, it was so clear, the divide there between so many white people and so many black people. I, you know, Andrew Luck, who was quarterback for the, for the Colts back then, said he felt terrible for his African-American teammates because if they didn't do something as part of the protest, they were betraying people of their own race. If they did do something, then white America was going to come down on their heads. And again, the Lamar, what, what really led me to uh, knowing, I, thinking I could do this book was Lamar Jackson. Because you remember when he was coming out of Louisville, all the old white guys, the pundits on TV, the general managers, the scouts were saying, yeah, he's like Robert Griffin. He'll get hurt playing quarterback. He should be a wide receiver. He should be uh, a running back. If you watch him play, he's nothing like Robert Griffin except for one thing. They're both African-American. He never takes a hard hit. He's much smarter than Lamar Jackson, excuse me, than Robert Griffin. And clearly he's become a, a star. He's the MVP of the league. But all these, all these white guys wanted him to change positions, and it took an African-American general manager, Ozzie Newsom, to draft him with the last pick of the first round. And my point is that to this day, there are people who still think African-Americans shouldn't be quarterbacks, even though the last two MVPs in the NFL have been African-Americans, Patrick Mahomes and Lamar Jackson. And that kind of bias exists throughout sports and throughout our society. Give me the list of African-Americans 
who are on the number one broadcast team for a network in the NFL or in the NBA. You've just done it. You've given me the list. And 70% of the athletes in those sports are mm-hmm. African-American. Well, well, this will be a fascinating book. I know Howard Bryant has uh, written a couple of great books on this subject. It seems like it's something that is being talked about more and more, and I think that's a great thing. And, Dad, why has race and sports been a, a subject that you've been interested in writing about as well? You know, I think it's uh, partly genetics. Um, I grew up uh, with a, a father who worshipped Jackie Robinson and would never root for the Boston Red Sox because they were the last team in baseball to integrate. And I grew up with my favorite players being Hank Aaron and Roberto Clemente um, and Bill Russell. Um, so I, I've just always have had that fascination and deep belief that race is the American dilemma, that it's never even become close to being resolved, that when you boil down so many of the political divisions and um, actions in this country, um, race is either the overt or covert uh, uh, explanation for so much of what's going on. And um, I find um, the black struggle in America to be um, not just fascinating, but at many times heroic. Um, and so I, you know, in, in the truest sense of that word, um, why do these people who have been, you know, fought in every American war and been treated as second-class citizens, um, keep believing in this country probably more patriotically than than most white people? Uh, it's an incredible story, and I've always uh, found compelling uh, drama in it as well. So. You know, from my book on uh, Wilma Rudolph and the Tennessee State Tiger Bells and Rayford Johnson and Cassius Clay at the 1960 Olympics in Rome through um, Vince Lombardi's uh, uh, fair treatment of the first African-Americans to play for the Green Bay Packers um, to the struggles of Roberto Clemente, who had overcome not just race but language uh, to prevail uh, in this society, uh, it's always been something that's been attracted my attention to write about. Well, and one other thing, Andrew, I think it, it's it's fascinating to me how now, 51 years after, or 52 years after Brent Musburger called Tommy Smith and John Carlos black-skinned stormtroopers because oh, of God. their protest on the medal stand in 1968, they're now heroes. They were banned from the Olympic movement uh, by Avery Brundage the day afterwards, and now they're finally being inducted into the USOC Hall of Fame. I believe that will happen someday with Colin Kaepernick. That well, people history, will look back. Yeah. Go ahead, David. No, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have interrupted. But you're absolutely well, right. Yeah, people <laughs> will look back and realize that what he did, as you said, David, was an act of heroism yep. and, and an act of patriotism. And I think, the, you know, again, a lot of white America doesn't want to hear that. Um, but I, I, I don't know if we'll live long enough to, to see it actually happen, but I believe it will. And, of course, with Muhammad Ali refusing to fight in the Vietnam War. Right. Um, and being incredibly vilified by almost the entire American press corps, with a few notable exceptions. Um, and yeah. then uh, decades later, being beloved by everyone. Uh, that's, that's what happened. Lighting the torch at the Atlanta Olympics. Yep. 
John, you mentioned that one thing you're doing is writing one of your kids' uh, mysteries, and I know you're an Edgar Award-winning author of, of books for young readers, which is what I'm doing now, too, is writing um, sports and nonfiction uh, for middle school and high school kids, and I, I love it. And I was curious um, why that was something that, that you wanted to do as well, is write for younger audiences. Well, the honest answer, Andrew, is it was my wife Christine's idea. Um, she was working... She was working for my agent, Esther Newberg, at the time. And Danny and I, my son, uh, read Carl Hyacinth's kid's book, Hoot, together and re really enjoyed it. And I called to get Carl's email because he's also represented by Esther. And Chris answered the phone. And while she was looking for Carl's email for me, uh, she said, have you ever thought about writing a, a kid's book? You talk about your children all the time. Um, and there's not that much in the sports genre for kids. And I, I had never thought about it. And she said, you ought to try to come up with an idea. So I've always believed that the best, not, the best fiction reads as if it could be nonfiction. I, I, I like it to feel real. I don't like to, to read about something that I know about and say, no, this is stupid. This couldn't possibly happen that way. Um, and I, I know, you know, I, I've never been into zombie fiction, uh, as I call it. Um, but so I, I said, okay, what do I know something about? Well, the final four. So I came up with this, you know, plot to bring together two teenagers, a boy and a girl, uh, who win a writing contest that actually exists and go to the final four and I stumble across a plot to fix the championship game. Now that, of course, was made up, I think. Um, and, uh, you, you know, I was able to describe what the final four looks and sounds and feels like because I've been to so many of them. And uh, as you said, the book won the Edgar Award. David's won Pulitzer's, I win an Edgar. Okay, I'll take what I can get. Um, but it was, it was actually a great honor to win that award. Yes. And, uh, um, you know, I, because that book did so well, I've continued to, to write kids fiction and I've, I've tried to stick to that sort of same formula of writing what I know about and trying to, to make it sound real. Like I, I wrote a book, a book called The Prodigy um, that was set at the Masters and I was hoping like hell that the members would, would ban me because I took so many shots at them for real stuff. I mean, I didn't have to make any of it up. Um, and how snooty they are and all their, you know, and I thought, A, it would mean a 29 Masters has been enough for me. I, I'd have been fine. Um, and it would have given the book great publicity. But unfortunately, they didn't ban me. But I, I wrote about what it feels like to be at the Masters. Uh, and, and so it, it's been a lot of fun. And the great thing for me when I'm writing these kids' books, you know, I, I mentioned how I don't have to go out of the house to, to write it is because the reporting is my life. That it's what I've done with my life. It's all there in my head somewhere. I just have to come up with a plot line. That's funny, John, that you had mentioned wanting to be banned for publicity. Andrew's next book, he's hoping that schools, some uh, right-wing schools will censor it for the same reason. Right, Andrew? Yeah, I've written, uh, finished the manuscript on a biography of uh, Glenn Burke. Uh, who was the first openly gay Major League Baseball player for the A's and the Dodgers in the late 70s. And um, 
based on my experience at some schools around the country the last couple of years, I'm, I'm pretty certain that there's few schools that won't bring the book into their library or won't invite me to speak to their school, which is a real shame for the kids at those schools who need to hear the story. But if they are going to ban me, I hope they do it publicly uh, to get a little publicity for the book. Well, you need to make sure that, that it's made public. And, and what will happen, Andrew, is when, when the kids are told they can't read that book, they're going to go home and say to their parents, I want this book. <laughs> That's right. And I'm glad we're talking about kids, John, because I've known you since I was probably seven years old. Um, yep. And I dug out of a box of old sports uh, magazines and media guides, uh, Indiana basketball media guides from 1981, <laughs> which was five years even before season on the brink. Yep. And I've always assumed you came back from covering an Indiana game and gave me this media guide signed by uh, Bob Knight, and it says, Andy, I'm 16-4 and four against Wisconsin, best Bob Knight, you know, because I'm obviously a, a Badger fan, and especially was at that time. And I've always thought that you really got Bobby Knight to sign this, but it just occurred to me now at age 50 that you might have signed it. Holy cow, you're 50? I'm going to go kill myself. Um, no, actually, I, no, I did, I did not sign it. Um, I, would, I wouldn't do that. Um, I first met Knight uh, covering the NCAA tournament in 1981 when they won the national championship. Um, they were playing Maryland in the second round. Um, and the day before the game, you know, they had press conferences for the two teams. And Dave Kindred, my, my great friend and longtime mentor, who knew Knight from his days in Louisville, he was at the Post by then, introduced me to Knight. And Knight wanted to, um, uh, wanted to uh, sort of uh, wine and dine me, whatever you want to call it, because one of his assistant coaches, Jerry Gimmelstab, was a candidate to get the George Washington job. And I was covering that coaching search. So he sat down and gave me all the time I wanted uh, that day. And then my other vivid memory is of the next day, this was in Dayton, um, uh, in the first game that, that afternoon, uh, St. Joseph's upset top-seeded DePaul. DePaul was a power back then. And so I had to write a game story on that, which I hadn't thought I had to do. And then in the second game, Maryland got out to an 8 nothing lead. And Ernest Graham, who, David, I know you remember, yeah. hit about a 25-footer to make it 8 nothing. There was no three-point line. Ran down the court with his fist up in the air. And I looked over at night, and he hadn't moved on the bench. Hadn't moved. Hadn't stood up. Wasn't talking. Just sitting there with his chin in his hand. And I looked at Dave Kindred, who was sitting next to me, and I said, I might be crazy, but I think Maryland's in trouble here. Night's too calm. And Indiana won the game 99-64. <laughs> and Maryland still hasn't stopped Isaiah Thomas. But no, I, I would never fake an autograph, Andrew. That was real. And, wow. and it, it was typical night to write something obnoxious to a seven-year-old kid. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> totally. <laughs> it well, actually it's made me think... I enjoyed it. That, that, I, I made me think fonder of night for doing that, actually. <laughs> 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 Dark humor. Well, it was... It was 
it was classic night. I mean, that, that, I, I still remember the year I was doing the book. They were recruiting a kid, and I'm, I'm going to block on his name now. But Knight had heard that um, he was thinking, he was leaning toward Maryland. And the kid came to visit on a Sunday and was sitting there during practice. And Knight walks over to him and he says, this is in the book, actually. So if you care about his name, you can look it up. Uh, he says, so I, I hear you're interested in Maryland. And the kid goes, yeah, you know, I really like Coach Rizal. And, and, and he says, good, you, you should go to Maryland. And it, because you'll fit right in there. Because the last time we played him, we only beat him by 35. So maybe we'll get to play, play them again while you're there, and maybe we'll beat them by 50 this time. <laughs> and I'm thinking, wait a minute, isn't he supposed to be charming this kid? <laughs> and the kid did go to Maryland. It fit right in. Yeah, fit right in. And I think the next time Indiana played Maryland, they didn't beat him by 50, but they probably beat him by 20. Um, well, we're sort of – winding down here with our hour, but one thing I wanted to ask you guys um, as authors, is that something that you retire from? John, I know your birthday is July 28th, same as my mother's and yep. Jackie Kennedy's. I think you're 63. By the blue. By the blue. By the blue, too. Is that right? Yep. Um, yep. Dad, you're recently 70, but do you guys feel like you're going to keep writing books forever? You go first, Johnny. You're the young I man. go first. I was going to defer to your age. Um, well, let me answer that question this way, Andrew. Um, a few years ago, I was driving to the Super Bowl in New Orleans because, as your dad says, I hate to fly. Um, and I got speed trapped in Mississippi. And the cop was, was, was very friendly. You know, he's checking my license to see if, uh, you know, I'm a felon or something. And while he's checking, he's chatting with me. And he says, uh, where are you headed? And I said, New Orleans. And he said, oh, really? Are you going to the Super Bowl? And I said, yes, I am. He said, who do you work for? I said, the Washington Post. And he said, oh, really? Woodward Bernstein? And I'm thinking, oh, Christ, I'm going to jail. Um, <laughs> and I said, yes. And he said, uh, well, how long have you been there? And I said, well, most of the time since I got out of college. And he said, Really? aren't you about ready to retire? I said, officer, I have a wife, I have an ex-wife, and I have three children. I'm not retiring anytime soon. And he looked at me and he said, it's the ex-wife that's killing you, isn't it? And he gave me back my license and let me go. I called my ex-wife. I said, first time in 25 years you saved me money. <laughs> so the answer to that question is I still have a wife. I still have an ex-wife. I still have three children. The ex-wife is still killing me, so I'm not retiring anytime soon. <laughs> well, I can't match Dad? that one. I can't match that one, John. I've had but I'm lucky one. that I do something I love to finish the answer. Yes. Well, that's right. So I've, I've had the same wife for 50 years since Andrew came into this world. And uh, I've, even though I've never had a number one bestseller like Johnny, I haven't uh, wasted my money, so I'm in pretty good shape there. So I don't have to work again. Um, but um, I don't consider what I do work. I consider it uh, an act of love and something that keeps my mind alive. It's like a constant graduate school. Um, so I think I will do it uh, till the end. Absolutely. No reason yeah. to quit. Yeah, no, I mean, and I, it's interesting. Uh, um, 
One of the things I've learned through the years, Andrew, is, you know, I've done TV, I've worked for ESPN, I've worked for Golf Channel, uh, I worked for CBS, I've done radio, I've hosted radio shows, um, gotten fired from all those jobs. Uh, <laughs> and, but, but fortunately, I, my first love always has been and always will be writing. And uh, as long as I can do it and as long as somebody will let me do it, I will continue to do it. Amen. Yes, well, how lucky are all the rest of us for uh, both of you continuing to write? Um, how lucky am I to have both of you guys as influences in my life? Dad, since the beginning, John, since basically the beginning when I was six, seven-year-old kid in yep. D.C. And um, this has been a really... Uh, well, Andrew, before we go, though, life. before we go, though, because people have this image of your father as being this brilliant writer and reporter, which he is. <laughs> but I think we should tell the story of the night. David used to come to me when he didn't take the car to work and ask me to give him a ride home. It wasn't that far out of the way, and I was happy to do it. And we would stop, as we mentioned earlier, at McDonald's and bring food home for you and your mom and, and your sister Sarah. And, uh, and it, was, it was always fun. So one night, David comes and says, hey, can you give me a ride home? We stop at McDonald's. We pull up to your house, and you and your mom and Sarah were sitting on the front step. It was summer. It was, the weather was nice. And Linda, I, I think it's fair to say, David, that Linda likes me, right? And, <laughs> and she, uh, has yeah, this, so. yeah. she has this look of absolute disgust on her face. <laughs> and I'm thinking, what is going on? Why is she so upset to see me? And we get out of the car and Linda looks at David and says, David, what have you done with our car? <laughs> and David goes, oh, God, I forgot. I drove to work today. <laughs> uh, that's happened more than once, but that's the most Oh, I know that. <laughs> yeah, well, everybody has to have some minor flaws, right, Jack? <laughs> that's right. That's right. And, and, and which reminds me of when my, my, my late brother-in-law went to my father to ask for my sister's hand in marriage. They'd been together for five years. And uh, David was a gentleman, so he went to see my dad. And he said, I, I, you know, Margaret and I have been together for a long time, and I think I, I'd, I'd like to marry her. And I assume you, you don't have any major objections to that. And my father said, no major objections. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Well, John, the other thing I was going to say, your story about getting out of a speeding ticket in Mississippi, dad would have been arrested, no doubt, and taken to jail, which has happened a few times as well. On the well, the, the amazing thing is that um, I, I have had some uh, run-ins with police through the years, and Knockwood managed to avoid jail each time, although a couple times I think it was close. <laughs> I was once arrested while I was going out. This is a, an Easter story. Linda and I were driving to the Honey Baked Ham to buy a ham for Easter Sunday. My parents were in town. I was arrested by the police, handcuffed, put in the back of their cruiser, taken down to the station. Um, they took away my shoelaces, and they claimed that uh, my uh, insurance had run out. Um, I That's what they arrested you for? Yes, in Texas. Uh, oh, you were in Texas. Okay, now yeah, I understand. Yeah. <laughs> and it wasn't even true. <laughs> And, 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 and you're, well, why the heck didn't you sue him? I beat the rap. Um, well, yeah, I hope I'm so. The, I'm not the litigious type, John. You know that. Okay. Yeah. I am. 
<laughs> I come from a family of lawyers, for crying out loud. Okay, wrap this one up, uh, Andrew. We're, we're starting to disintegrate here. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, this has been such a fun conversation. Everybody should go out there and buy Back Roads to March. Uh, and, John, thanks for joining us on this podcast today. That's My pleasure. I'm glad we found a technical way to do it that I could handle. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> You've just listened to an episode of the David Marinus Ink in Our Blood podcast. We hope you'll subscribe to the Ink in Our Blood podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or whichever podcast service you prefer. If you loved it, we'd love it if you left a rating or review. Ink in Our Blood is produced by Metamorphosis.agency with creative direction by Monica Ryan and strategy and technical production by Jeremy Ryan. Music is by the legendary Ben Sidron. I'm your host, Sarah Marinus Vanderschaff. Thank you for listening. I made my way to the back nine. They call me the Iron Man. Watching out for the sand traps. Formulating my plan. Out on the back nine. <laughs>